podcast for January 2020, volume 58, number one. My name's David Zachary. I'm DTB's deputy editor. And I'm James Cave, editor-in-chief. Our editorial this month was prompted by a meeting that we both attended with colleagues from other drug bulletins from across the world. James, tell me a little bit about it. Yeah, so this is an editorial that I've written on the basis of Andrew Herxheimer's memorial lecture at the 2019 Paris General Assembly of the ISDB. It was delivered by Alan Castles and Dee Mangan, and we looked at the issues around burden of overprescribing and how we can deprescribe. So it drew together that whole series of themes that we've talked about before, the, the overprescribing, the guidelines that are single disease focused and don't take into account needs of people with complex multiple conditions, the balance of benefits and harms of medicines, and as you say, the challenge of deprescribing, what particularly were some of the solutions that they came up with or suggested? Yes, I mean, first of all, I was I was quite taken by the number of databases and tools there now are for deprescribing, and we list those in the editorial, and uh, they are a lot of them are available on the internet, very easy to access, and I, and I was impressed by that. And we also talked a little bit about some of the barriers that are in place for deprescribing. And I think particularly hesitancy amongst GPs, as it often is GPs, or clinical pharmacists, to stop medicines that perhaps were started by specialists in the past. And that real concern that you will stop some treatment and then perhaps later, only a month later, the patient might develop a cardiovascular event or something which you feel perhaps would have been prevented if you continued it. So we worry more about the event happening rather than the event we may be causing by continuing with the medicine. And that, isn't that the way with, with medicine? Absolutely. We, we are happy always to do things to people, and we always worry that we haven't done enough. But it struck me that there's still a considerable skills gap between knowing that we should deprescribe and knowing how we should deprescribe. I think there is, and I think the other thing is that there's almost become a tyranny of evidence-based medicine. Evidence trumps everything else, and I was really taken by... I think it was Dee Mangan who, who re-quoted David Sackett's definition of evidence-based medicine. And it's worth repeating again. He said it's a bottom-up approach that integrates the best external evidence with individual clinical expertise and patient choice. So it's actually three elements. The evidence-based has got to be there, but also your clinical expertise and the patient's choice also are equally important. And I think we keep forgetting that when we're looking at drugs. And one of the just picking up on that point, one of the things that struck me was when it comes to the patient choice, one of the concerns articulated by patients is, if you stop my medicine, I'll never get it back again. Whereas maybe the simple response is, we will try and halt it, but it's always there if you need to start it again. Absolutely. And I, and I think this was, came up in the lecture, the concept, let's have a drug holiday. Let's try without it. This is not forever. You can always go back on it, but let's have a, a drug holiday. And I think that's a very useful way of introducing this concept of deprescribing to patients. Excellent. Lots of good stuff. OK, thank you for that. Let's move on. This month, we've published one of our forum discussion articles in which Alan Jacobson and John McAvoy talk about the old chestnut of aspirin and in particular primary prevention so key issues? Yes, this, uh, this was really good because I thought the business of aspirin in primary prevention had been done. I thought we decided it was no good and let's all just stop taking aspirin uh, for primary prevention. And I think, you know, one might still say that that's the headlines. But I think uh, Alan and John really uh, very helpfully actually tease out some of 
the new evidence around this. And in particular, they remind us that NICE, actually through a clinical knowledge summary, still suggests that there may be a place for aspirin on a case-by-case -case basis for patients at high risk. And that's also in alignment with the American Heart Association and American College of Cardiology guidelines for primary prevention. So actually there are still bodies suggesting that aspirin might be uh, an option in some patients. And then in our um, DTP forum article, we talk about the three new primary prevention studies, ARRIVE, ASCEND and ASPRI, that were only published actually last year. And we look at those in some detail and give you the outcomes from those and uh, finish off with the numbers needed to treat and harm. And if you were to quote those, the number needed to treat for that kind of composite endpoint. That's right. So the sort of cardiovascular mortality, non-fatal MIs and non-fatal strokes, which are classically what people quote. You're talking about a number needed to treat of about 241 to prevent one of those. And the number needed to harm? And the number needed to harm is 334. So, and that's a major bleed, a major GI bleed. So, you know, we're back to where we were, I think, right at the beginning, which is actually the balance is, on the whole, equipoise, but there may be particular patients at high risk. And they talk about this in the article, that you may actually, in consideration, once again, with the patient, you know, what, what do you want to do? There may well be a place for aspirin in primary prevention. So just when you think you've got something sorted and it's uh, don't use? Just when you've done your searches throughout the whole of your, you know, primary care network or practice and you've said, yep, here we go. We All these patients should be off their aspirin. We now might have to go back and say, well, perhaps, perhaps we should be rethinking that. So for some people, it may be of value, but for most people, not. Indeed. OK, thank you very much. And our main article this month is another from our series that focuses on prescribing for pregnancy. So we have had a general introductory article that set the scene. So what was this one focused on? So this is an article on prescribing pregnancy in women with mental health uh, issues, which I think is a really, really important issue for us. We summarise the fact that up to 20% of women will experience a mental health problem during pregnancy or in the first year after birth. So one in five women might fall into this category. And we look at the whole aspect of mental health in pregnancy and in the perinatal period. So once again, the team who've been doing this for us have provided a really comprehensive article on when to use drugs, what not to do in particular, and you know particular issues around breastfeeding and those sorts of elements too. And it continues that theme, which we'll probably mention every time, which is if you're going to, if you've got somebody who is being treated with a any form of drug therapy, it's better to plan the pregnancy and think about how you're going to manage the drug before they get pregnant than it is trying to deal with it once they get pregnant. But on the whole, don't stop drugs in yeah. an in a hurry that that's that i think is the key message here is you're absolutely right it's far better to pre-plan but if you haven't pre-planned and a woman presents with pregnancy and they're on an ssri that, that'll be the typical scenario don't stop the drug they really ought to continue it be referred up to the specialist unit and they'll go through the issues with the prospective mother but yes don't stop the drug okay thank you very much and finally Case report, we've got another one this month. Quick headline. Yes, this, this was, I think this is more of an interest around um, never forget that drugs can cause side effects. So this was a, a case of a 56-year-old man 
with type 2 diabetes who was started on citagliptin, which is a dipeptidyl peptidase 4 inhibitor, and subsequently, three months later, developed seronegative arthritis, seronegative rheumatoid arthritis. And I think what was interesting, perhaps, is the case report does look at some of the pathways that DPP4 plays in some of the inflammatory lines of, of uh, physiology as well. And uh, this particular patient also perhaps had a genetic predisposition with um, a particular HLA-DRB3 complex, which might therefore, you know, start to, th we need to start thinking about, you know, do we need to start looking at people's genetics when we come to using drugs to see if they're more at risk of certain issues. So it's it's not something I think we're going to see very much of. It's a rare complication. In fact, it's not clear even from this case report whether citagliptin caused the seronegative rheumatoid arthritis. It's an association, but it does raise a lot of quite interesting physiology and pathology. And I, again, I had a quick look at the MHRA yellow card reports because I couldn't see anything in the SPC to say that it's a, it's a major problem. 60 reports related to joints, one report of rheumatoid arthritis out of about 2,500 reports. So, as you say, it may not be what the cause was in this case, but equally some useful learning points. Yeah, in, and it, yeah, it is interesting. And I think, you know, if, if ever someone develops a significant problem within a few months of starting medication, just ask yourself, could it be, you know, the medication? It's really important that we don't miss adverse events. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, to read these and any of our articles, please visit dtb.bmj.com. Uh, if you're listening to this in December, Happy New Year. And if you listen to this in January, welcome to 2020.